1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Allie Watkins, who covers intelligence and national security for the Huffington Post, based in Washington, D.C. Previously, she covered national security and regional politics for McClatchy Newspaper's D.C. Bureau. She has a journalism degree from Philadelphia's Temple University. Welcome, Allie. Thank you for taking the time to be with us here on SpyCast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So let's talk about very broad-based questions about covering intelligence, because there are some real intricacies to it. That aren't there with other kinds of journalism, and, and one of the biggest ones is you know you have difficulties covering an area that doesn't usually lend itself to transparency and openness. Most of these organizations uh, are not doing things for public knowledge. In fact, just the opposite is true. So, can you talk a little bit about how hard it can be to cover an area where no one really wants you to know anything?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when I first. Started with McClatchy and kind of started poking at some of these subjects. Um, to me, it was kind of like a novelty. It was that that fun beat that nobody knew about. So there was this this pull that you wanted to figure something out. Um, I learned quickly as I started making it a career that it wasn't always fun. That it was usually more frustrating than fun. Um, so I, I think that the the challenge of intelligence reporting is what draws a lot of people to the beat. Um, I think it's it's a hard beat to fit into Washington because Washington is so reliant on this day-to-day churn of stories. You know, you're expected, especially with new media, to pump out three, four stories a day. Intelligence reporting doesn't really lend itself to that. You know, it takes, um, it, it takes a lot of old-school journalism skills, which is really, at the end of the day, why I, I kind of fell in love with the beat. Um, because you have to really go back... To the foundations and the foundational elements to break into this beat that people don't want you to, to dig into. Um, you know, you have to build trust with people to get them to give you any kind of tips. Um, you have to, to build a reputation for fairness and good reporting to, to find other people willing to talk to you. Um, so it's, it's a consistently frustrating beat. I usually compare it to willingly banging your head against a brick wall every day of your career. Um, but the payoff is usually pretty sensational. You know, when you can. Right. Right. shed light on something that, that the public doesn't know about that they have a right to know about um so it's it's a constant balancing act between frustration and and real excitement over what you get to cover um, but it's it's a great beat to to get your you know journalism legs with
1: let me ask you about anonymous sources uh, <laughs> because that's how in some cases not many cases uh you're getting a lot of inner information there can be real problems associated with this i don't have to tell you that this is like journalism 101 mm. One of the main ones, of course, is the inability to verify sources. This is not like covering the political beat, where you got plot fact, or you know, you can't lie in sports because you got all the stats to back you up. How, mm-hmm. when you're when you're so reliant on anonymous sources, and of course, the, the key tenets of journalism is you're trying to verify things before you pu- actually publish them. Mm-hmm. How? Does this make your life especially difficult? (laughs) And and how do you work around this? I mean, how what are what are your personal opinions on anonymous sources?
0: Yeah, I think sourcing is probably the most challenging part of the beat um, because it it kind of is a double edged sword. You know, on one hand, when you can offer a trusted source anonymity, you know, you can open up a whole new door of, of tips and information. You know, on the flip side there are a lot of people who would love anonymity just to complain or give you false information or or spin their side mm-hmm. of the narrative um so i think a, a lot of the sourcing question in intelligence reporting comes down to how well you know your sources um how well, you've sourced a story. Uh, you know, I was taught at McClatchy a foundational element of reporting that I think should carry to all beats, but particularly intelligence, which is that you need to have two on-the-record sources, be it anonymous, be it, you know, however the agreement is, but you need to have two sources, preferably from two different sides of the story, giving you consistency to know you have a story right. Um, you know, I think there, there's always a temptation when when someone you know, you get some crazy email in your inbox saying they need anonymity and they have this great information. There's always, you know, that journalistic pull to be like, oh my God, this is going to be great. Um, but it's taken a lot of discipline and mentorship, um, to learn that you can't just take that particularly in in something that is of such great consequence, like intelligence reporting.
1: If someone feeds you purposeful disinformation, if they feed you a line of bull in order to, you know, for a political agenda or or for an attempt to you know, you can be even used to provide disinformation to foreign enemies or anything. Do they lose their right to anonymity? Is that, is that kind of a deal breaker where, you know, all of a sudden that deal goes out the window?
0: Um, you know, I don't know. I guess to to preface this, I'm obviously still kind of Learning. I think it's a day to day learning process. Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily believe in, you know, if someone calls, gives you a spun story, you know, if if they say it's off the record, gives you a spun story, you know, and then you out them in a story. I don't really believe in that. I don't think there's any reason to burn someone like that. You just don't use the information. Um, but I, I think they're you need to balance like you can't just publish something under anonymity that you know has a political spin you just choose not to use that information or you qualify it somehow in a way that that lets the reader know you know there's context here that you need to be aware of so it's it's kind of it's very difficult to toe that line i think in intelligence reporting between translating too much for your reader cuz you know at the end of the day our job is to put information out and let the reader you know, make the objectivity, journalistic right. objectivity. Um, but on, on the flip side of things, you know, intelligence reporting can get really hairy with, with secrets and anonymity mm. and, and all these very complex secret things, um, that there does have to be kind of that translation to an extent of at least giving a reader context as to this right. is why this agency is saying one thing. This is why this agency is saying another.
1: I'm going I'm to ask you a question in a couple of minutes about journalistic objectivity. Uh, but for first I, I'd like to ask you about the, the Obama administration has been particularly, let's use the word infamous, about this aggressive prosecution of leakers, of people providing information to the press. There's, of course, the case of James Risen, who, uh, Ryzen, uh, who uh, essentially had to fight in court for a long time to keep his journalistic integrity. Uh, you know There have been more whistleblowers slash leakers prosecuted under this current administration than ever before. How difficult does that make your job? I mean, do you see uh, any changes or have you been talking to people that can tell you about changes from 20 years ago because, you know, you were. You, <laughs> I, you I was not here 20 yeah, years ago, so full uh, This is audio. You know, I think she was playing in blocks 20 years ago. We'll talk about her, her exuberance in her youth. But uh, I, I, how, how much can we attribute uh, this prosecution of leakers to uh, changes and covering intelligence.
0: Yeah. You know, I was lucky to start in a very traditional news organization like McClatchy, where I, I learned and was mentored by people who have reported through several administrations on intelligence issues. Um, and, you know, learning from them and working with them, I learned how difficult I think it, it is to come of age in. Of intelligence reporting in the Obama administration, Um, you know, I think it was hard. I think it had its challenges in any administration, Um, and and kind of on the flip side, it it might be beneficial to me to just grow up getting used to this because I don't think it's certainly not going to get better. Um, So yeah, I think there's, I think it's a combination of the Obama administration's willingness to go after sources and that it's much easier to track down sources mm-hmm. given this, you know, the electronic communication age. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of factors at play that have made it so much more prevalent, you know, not, not the least of which is that it's a lot easier nowadays. Um, so I think a lot of kind of adjusting to this new realm is again, going back to those foundations. How do you make sure you protect your sources in an age that it's so easy for the administration to figure out who they are?
1: So the world of intelligence is incredibly complicated as you know as our listeners certainly do there's a lot of moving parts there's a lot of things that most people just don't learn in college right you actually have to learn a lot about this world and in doing so uh you kind of have to become a bit becoming a little bit psychologically attached to the intelligence defense <laughs> communities uh it, 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 you know in some cases familiarity breeds contempt you know you start being i'm i'm going to break these guys down in other cases you can become essentially a spokesperson for the intelligence community, the DOD. How do you avoid this? How do you how do you maintain journalistic objectivity? How do you know a subject so well, get to know people so well, and at the same time, take a step back enough that you can report them in a critical way if necessary, but also report them in a fair way if they're doing a good job?
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a major challenge, with, as you said, with such a complex and secretive beat. Um, and what's really helped me, and I think it's kind of Counter to what you're taught as a reporter, what you're supposed to do is to be willing to ask people for help to to find trusted sources. Um, you know, be it, they don't even need to be some secret analyst sitting at a CIA desk. It could be an academic or, or someone else you know who has more experience in the subject. Um, and and. You know, really seeking out those people and getting context from from people who you know are objective, from people who you know have studied these things for a long time. Um, and I think it, it's a responsibility of a reporter to their readers to make sure that, you know, they are as educated in their subject matter as they can be. Um, it's, I mean it's impossible to know the ins and outs of all 17 intelligence agencies. You know, I, most people wouldn't even know the acronyms. I don't mm. even know if I could rattle off all the acronyms. Um, so I think there, there needs to be a, uh, you know, when you're expected to cover this umbrella of such a, a large secretive, complex beat, you, there needs to be a willingness to know what you don't know and seek out trusted people who can help you contextualize that.
1: Let's do an acronym quit. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Recently, journalists have become the story in certain circumstances. So in some of these cases, the journalist is a story because he or she has been uh, taken hostage by ISIS or other terrorists. This is the you know James Foley, the Stephen Stotloff. Uh, in other cases, the journalist has become the story because of his or her part in revealing information, the Green- Greenwalds of the world. Uh, Cy Hirsch certainly is a good example. You go all the way to Woodward and Bernstein the CIA tries not to use journalists as cover for this exact reason. Because a lot of people are seeing journalists as being part of the story or more or as they're already engaged in spying uh, for their countries. So this question is not trying to take anything away from those journalists. You know, certainly, you know Foley and Sotloff are heroes. Many people consider Greenwald and Cy Hirsch a hero. But how far should journalists be willing to go? Where is the line? And I know this is kind of a... Graduate School of Journalism seminar question. It's it's very Uh, academic. Yeah, very academic. But I mean, in your personal opinion, I mean, it's personal safety is certainly a key consideration. But where do you put yourself into the stories? I mean, Cy Hirsch has been doing this. for. He's a great example of this, right? I mean, he breaks Abu Ghraib. He goes back and breaks Milai. He's a big part. But the story becomes kind of, this is Cy Hirsch's story. How do you avoid that if it should be avoided? Uh, And you know, how far do you go in a situation like covering an ISIS, for example, to not put yourself in a James Foley position?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's kind of a there's pros and cons to either approach. And I I don't necessarily know which one is better. I know the one um, that I have kind of enjoyed taking more is to let a story speak for itself. Um, This is a tough question. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, it's good. It's Uh, good. (laughs)
1: Again, this is one of those kind of uh, waxing philosophic, you know, Yeah, I hope I get like a journalism journalism grad degree (laughs) outside the door
0: here. Um, I I guess to give you like a personal anecdote, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe this will kind of illustrate where I come down on it. Um, When I was with McClatchy, I was on the team that broke the story of the CIA spying on the Senate torture report. Um, And there was a really interesting story behind that story of you know how it was reported i was in college at the time and there were you know all these really fun sensational little details um and i remember my mentor and editor uh jim asher who runs the bureau over there took me aside before we broke that story and kind of said to me you know you're going to have an experience in the next couple weeks where you're going to have to choose You know, people are gonna think it's crazy that you were a part of this story. You can either choose to be a part of the story or you can't. He's like, and I can't tell you which one's Mm -hmm. right or wrong, it's gonna depend on you. Um, but it really is your call, and I just want you to know that this choice is gonna come up for you. And he was right, and I always really was glad that I chose to not Mm -hmm. embrace putting myself in that story. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it probably depends on the story. You know, when a when a journalist's involvement adds to the story like a Jim Foley or a Steven Saltwoff, you know, that, that, that narrative was so intertwined with, with ISIS and what it was doing, you know, that you can't separate that. It's impossible. And to, to report on it well would be impossible to separate yourself. Um, but I, I mean, I think it really depends on the story and, and the, the involvement of the journalist and how the journalist involvement mm-hmm. lends itself to telling that story. So I think it's really a case by case basis.
1: Let me ask you about new media. Uh, you write for the Huffington Post, which a short while ago, you know, maybe a decade ago, was doing cat pictures and celebrity <laughs> gossip. Now the Huffington Post still does cat pictures and celebrity gossip, but they've hired an incredible slate of reporters, yourself included. They're doing hard-hitting news. They're breaking stories. Uh, but for some of our listeners out there who are older, retired, they might not even know what it is, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's very much skewing younger demographic it's online only. You're not getting the Huffington Post delivered to you on your doorstep every day. And I'm going to, I may not be fair, I'm going to kind of bring this question with a little social media aspect to it as well, because new ways and innovative ways of telling the news, which is, you know, you are a representative of, you're not a, you know, you, you are a real media person, but social media becomes, it's brought up in this conversation a lot too. How, or what is the impact of new media and social media on the way that news is is reported, and more specifically, how intelligence and national security news is being reported. The deep sigh allegation. <laughs> yeah, as, as I wax philosophically
0: again. Um, it's been very interesting to see going from a traditional newspaper company to a new media outlet on the same beat, seeing the differences there. Um, and I'm going to speak broadly about mm-hmm. new media, you know, my thoughts here aren't certainly aren't directed at my employer. Um, But I think when it comes to sustaining good, hard-hitting, fair, true intelligence reporting, I think new media has a lot of work to do. Um, I think that new media helps feed this DC monster that I talked about earlier that requires you to have, you know, stories upon stories upon stories where it's more about clicks than truth and facts. And I think all reporting suffers, but particularly something, you know, obviously I'm biased, but as as I I feel as of such great consequences, intelligence reporting can really suffer when you're more concerned with getting a clicky headline Mm. than getting what's true. Um, And I think that also ties into the issue of anonymous sources. Um, You know, if you have an anonymous source telling you something crazy that could get a lot of clicks, um, I think the traditional journalistic foundations would say, what the heck are you doing? You can't publish this. I think the knee jerk reaction of new media is we should just put it out there. We'll figure it out later. We can update, we can correct, we can clarify. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, that's very dangerous, I think. Um, But I think that there's also as new media has kind of developed, I think there's been an acknowledgement that not all beats and not all reporting can really adhere to that new model um, because it really just doesn't serve anyone well—the reporters, mm-hmm. the public, or the subjects that we're covering.
1: Let, let me ask you a follow-up. That I thought of while you were mentioning this: How has new media forced old media to try? <laughs> I mean, you, you see, you know, let's say the New York Times or somebody, you know, saying we need to get something up quickly and to get something fast so we don't get scooped by Huffington or Vice News or Slate or somebody because you know they're going to get up online before we can. How has that? changed the old fashioned way of doing media. Again, this is journalism one-on-one <laughs> question, but yeah. you're, you're, you're uniquely qualified to at least attempt to answer this question. For <laughs> I,
0: I think it cuts to the the age old argument of, is it better to be first or is it better to be right? right? Um, and I think that's a struggle that's consistently happening. And I, and I don't know that it's, I mean, obviously you want to be right. It's not a question. Um, but I'm trying to think this is a complex thing I'm trying to explain um, you know for if you have this sensational story that you want to put out and you know there's other people chasing you um, but you don't have all of it if you just have pieces you know can you put certain pieces of that out first and see what else it can shake loose or do you wait and let the New York Times maybe get pieces of it and then eventually put out your full story so I think there's this constant like trade-off that's happening um i'm not limited to the intelligence beat i think with any beat with like you know do what do we have reportable right now do we run with it do we wait and write a more comprehensive story um and i don't know which model is necessarily better you know for some stories i prefer to wait until someone can put out a full comprehensive these are this is a well-sourced well-reported story or here's a piecemeal day by day, this is what's happening, you know, still well reported, but not as comprehensive story, you know, and that kind of plays into the, this is probably very abstract. I don't even know if I'm communicating this clearly, but I, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think there's a constant struggle over whether you wait to have a full story or report what you know. And I don't know that those are necessarily like a black or white answer. I think it just kind of depends on the circumstance. And I think that's the challenge that has arisen with new media and old media, because before it was kind of up to a traditional legacy company to decide that, you know, are we going to put out this part of the story or are we just going to wait till, you know, the Sunday edition and splash it on the front page? Now it's like, well, shit, what are we going to?
1: You're allowed to. Okay. Yeah.
0: Sorry. <laughs> we just
1: posted a podcast last week that had more F bombs than. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. That so makes you feel you're better. Good. <laughs>
0: um, but I think that, you know, there's now there's that choice that has to happen because there are reputable outlets who are willing to post what they know, what's reportable right now.
1: Right. Well, and I think that, again, a second follow up question to that, and this might be even more obscure and abstract, <laughs> is it used to be where. If at eleven in the morning you found a story, you had the rest of the day to report on it, to find out what was going on, and get it out in the physical paper that came out the next day. Now with the twenty-four hour news cycle, with the internet, with let's beat them on, you know, let's got to get something out within ten minutes. Yeah, that even causes those lines to blur Mm even more. You know, that that's more me waxing philosophic myself. You don't even need to, to comment on that. So let me, let me ask you the, the final big general question. And this is really the fundamental question uh, that we want to talk about. When you report on intelligence or national security, most of it's secret. So you have to walk a fine line between informing the public and maintaining national security. Can we do both? And I assume the answer is probably yes. But do you personally err on the side of national security or on the public should know? aspect of reporting on intelligence?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know that, I mean, as a reporter, I would certainly tend towards the public should know, but I I don't think that you always, I think everyone deserves a right to at least be heard. You know, if someone can make a compelling case as for this is why this is a bad idea, and I, I don't think you ever take what the cia tells you and listen to it and say oh okay i'm sorry i won't publish it like that's journalism 101 um but you know journalism is this constant developing art of kind of figuring out a balance um and i i i have not yet encountered a situation where i've been told you cannot publish this or there will be serious consequences Mm -hmm. um I think I'd probably have to take it on a case-by-case basis. I think that you have to. Right. As a reporter, you can't really pick one way or the other. Um,
1: so let me, let me stop you and give you a case. Um, we can move it from the hypothetical realm to, to even more hypothetical realm. If a couple of years ago you, uh, you had been uh, you know, beginning a reporting career and you got an email saying, uh, I'm an NSA contractor. I have a bunch of information that I want to see published. The United States government is spying on its American people, uh, and my name is Edward Snowden. Would you publish the Snowden documents? Would you do what Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and The Guardian did and now what The Intercept is doing? Would you? Pur- I'm not saying the Huffington Post. I'm not asking you to speak for anyone but yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that specific case, would you have uh, published the Snowden documents? Simple, straightforward. Oh, of course, it's not simple. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all.
0: Um, speaking – certainly not cutting at what Glenn Greenwald or Laura Poitras did. Um, you know, how I would have handled it personally if it happened to me. Um, I mean, it made me laugh when – the story came out about how Greenwald had gotten several emails from him and ignored him because I think every intelligence reporter has had that experience where you get an email and you're just like, Oh my gosh, this guy's sitting at home with tinfoil on his head. Like I'm not going to respond. So that, I mean, that probably would have been my first reaction, honestly. Um, As far as publishing the documents, I think it was right to publish them. I think the lack of, you know, the the fire and brimstone predictions from the intelligence community. How many years are we past right. this now? Two years. You know, the world is still a mess, but did we really expect anything else? Um, you know, as for this cuts back to your how far do journalists get involved in the story? I don't I can't speak to whether or not I would have because I've never been in a situation like that where someone has been I mean risked so much I mean we all have incredibly sensitive sources on this beat Um, obviously the Greenwald instance was a pretty sensational outreach from a source um, which is you know as far as we know was fairly out of the blue so the connection that you feel to a source in that kind of instance you know I can't I know that the loyalty that I think a lot of reporters feel to sources, not a loyalty of like, I'm just going to take what you say and publish it, but a loyalty of like, you are trusting me to talk to me. I am going to protect you. I think that's a really kind of sacred relationship that doesn't exist as much Mm -hmm. anymore. I think. And as you said, with the modern fear of being prosecuted. Um, So it's easy for me to say, not having had that experience that I wouldn't have gotten as involved in Snowden's, you know, the effort to flee but i can't right. i can't really say because i don't know completely it's unfair so question. difficult i mean it's i think every reporter has thought of that i yeah. think that as we've gotten to hear more about how the you know the story behind the story I'm, i mean every intelligence reporter has sat there drooling just like right. what would i do and you don't really know and it's very easy for for you to slam how other reporters have handled it I, that's, I, that's never a good idea. In you know, my opinion, it's clearly you know?
1: going to be, you know, taught in journalism school for the next several decades. I mean, yeah. I think it's our, our, our parents' generation was taught Mark Felton, deep throat. And like, yeah, that's like exactly. the journalism story. And it's going to be Snowden, I think for, mm-hmm. for certainly the foreseeable future. Um, you already alluded to this, uh, but this is where, this is the part of the podcast where our listeners, including myself feel as though we are massive underachievers. Uh, as a senior in college, you were an intern for McClatchy at the time. That's when you helped to break uh, the major story that the CIA had been spying on the Senate over the torture report. Um, I, I'm gonna. Uh,
0: I was just sorry, just to interject. I was a stringer. I just want to make that clear because everybody like made this huge unpaid intern stink over this. I was a stringer. Thank you, McClatchy. But go ahead, carry on. <laughs> so,
1: so, but a lot of a lot of the rays that you helped to break this story is a part of a team. Certainly, you know, it's not you're not the only byline on this. Um, was that you were dogged. And this is actually, when, when I asked Jen Bendry, a mutual friend of ours, who hopefully is okay with me naming her, uh, about you, she said, you're a reporter. And she meant that with all the kind of possible, uh, you know, flattery. It's, it's a, the most positive word she could have said. I'm right? very she, flat- yeah, She's like, she she's a that. reporter. Uh, and that seems to come through in this story, where you just kind of doggedly just sat and just talk to anybody who would talk to you and just kind of constantly built trust and rapport with people who finally it came through in the end that you were given this beat. Can you talk a little bit about how this came You You hinted at already, but a little bit more. This is where you get – I'm giving you the permission to put yourself <laughs> into the story a little bit and let us okay. know how this pulled out.
0: Okay. Um, I'm always hesitant to do that. But, for I mean, it's, it's a fun story to tell and it's a fun story to hear, I think. Um, you know, I've used it as I've talked to – People on, you know, younger reporters on the Hill, which, t- to be fair, there aren't a ton. But, you know, to talk to people who I see who are kind of like, this is so cool. How did you? Do I think one of the things that that experience taught me is consistency. Um, you know, that story didn't happen overnight. I had been working for McClatchy for, you know, roughly 10 months or so at that point. Um, and it, it literally came down to finding an area that was undercovered. For me, that was the Senate Intelligence Committee, just because to me, that was the easiest, the, the point of easiest access for me to the intelligence beat. The CIA does not let you sit outside their door. They would not allow that to happen. <laughs> the Intelligence Committee, for whatever reason, does. Um, so, you know, to for a lot of this story was consistency and showing up every day. And and again, it was not just me. It was consistency from all of us with all of our sources and all of our kind of separate corners of the story of, of showing up of showing people we were interested. Um, And and one of the biggest lessons I learned out of it is that when you show up, most people are going to get really pissed off, but there are going to be people who recognize that. And when they want to talk about something, be it sensitive or otherwise, you're going to be the person they think of because your face is there all the time. Um, you know, also the Hill, I just to throw out my own advice for any young journalist looking the Hill to me is one of the best places to report in in DC because it's the central organizing hub for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't just have the Senate Intelligence Committee, you had the CIA, you had DIA, you had NSA, you had everybody there all the time. Um, so it was like finding a way to get in front of people and to be there constantly and, and to be the person that they were talking about. Like who the hell is this college kid in the hallway? Why is she here? Who is she? So it's kind of starting that conversation and showing up enough that people had that conversation. Um, as far as like the how the story came together, it was really old school stuff mm-hmm. and it was such a fantastic learning experience as a young reporter, to solidify the foundations, Um, you know, doing the old school stuff, um, learning how to approach people you've never approached, learning how to build trust with people who you know don't want to talk to you, and learning particularly how to deal with people who really don't want you covering what you're working on. Um, You know, the adversarial part of that was probably the best lesson that I learned because you learn pretty quickly here that like people are not going to like you mm-hmm. and, and people are going to look for ways to get you to stop what you're looking into, particularly with intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ran into a lot of that certainly with the story we were covering. Um, so it was a, a crazy ride and it was, it, I think it to me exhibited, I, I, from what you said, Jen said, like, I hope that that's what is communicated through it is that it, we were reporters. Right. We were old school with it. We did everything we could to protect people, to find the right people, to show up enough that people knew we were serious. And I think that that's, if you stick to those principles and continue them through reporting, whatever beat you're on, you're going to find great stuff.
1: Let let me ask you about something that our listeners have figured out by this point is that you were a woman, uh, (laughs) surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Surprise. Um, and and this tends to be maybe other than the sports beat. (laughs) <laughs> the national security and intelligence beat tends to be a bit of an old boys club where this is something that men have dominated for decades, if not forever. The idea that uh, women understand national security, you know, we, we today, most of us think that's kind of ridiculous to even question that. But it certainly uh, hasn't been true in the past. There's been a lot of women covering this. Uh, how is gender affected uh, your access affected the way people are willing to talk to you. You're young also, which you know, a young woman versus some of these you know older men who have been doing this for a long time. Has this been something that you found particularly difficult or maybe make your life a little easier in mm-hmm. some cases?
0: I'm really glad you asked the question. I think it's something that women are hesitant to talk about here. Um, it's It's different. I think Um, it's. I remember the moment that it really hit me. I was covering a hearing, a closed hearing with the Intelligence Committee, and I was standing out in the hallway. And here I was, like I think I was just out of college. um, And the Intelligence Committee was having a uh, one of their World Threats hearings, so all of the directors were there, you know, and everyone was there, and. When the directors are in a closed session, all of their bodyguards stand, you know, in this crazy, like, line along the the barrier of the heart building. And I remember looking down that hallway and realizing that I was the only woman in the hall. I mean, there were probably 15 bodyguards there from different agencies. I was not only the only woman in the hallway, you know, I was quite young compared to them. But the the gender thing really struck me because here were all these very powerful men, some of the most powerful men in Washington in the world, having to report to Diane Feinstein, an 83-year-old woman senator from mm-hmm. California. And the the significance of that really struck me. Um, and to be honest, that was kind of one of my moments where I really found a, a new kind of respect for her. You know, as some, someone I cover, you know, obviously it's a occasionally an adversarial relationship but kind of recognizing that that is a very real um very concrete contrast you know even just looking at that hallway um it you know being in a, a beat there there's i'm certainly a one of the minorities you know there there are a lot of great women intelligence reporters and they've been people that i've really looked up to you know siobhan gorman um marissa taylor with mcclatchy is fantastic um and you know kind of taking my cues off them you know I think that obviously you act like you're you don't focus on it you know you certainly don't use it to your advantage or Mm -hmm. disadvantage um but it's funny to see having worked with older male intelligence reporters it's very interesting to see how people deal with us differently um you know whether it's because I'm young or whether it's because I'm a woman I don't know but I certainly feel like I'm jerked around a lot more Mm -hmm. um Which I I think is probably typical with a lot of reporters who whoever an agency thinks they can kind of yank their chain, they'll yank it. Um, But even, you know, in the course of covering some of the stuff we covered with the CIA and the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, there would be people that I would talk to and it would be a, a very different approach than when a colleague would talk to them or when I'd see them work with an older male intelligence reporter. Um, and, and that's a very stark contrast. And I think it's, it's something like you said, this is traditionally an old boys club. And I think it's very resistant to change being an old boys club at the end of the day. Um, you know, they, they certainly are diverse and every agency has their own way of trying to balance that kind of skewed equation. Um, but from a reporter perspective, when, you know, when you're in a role, where you're supposed to be adversarial and fighting against these people, I, I think it, it's, they, they tend to fall back. You you realize that that reality is mm-hmm. there. Um, so it's, it's challenging and it's, it's very, it, it's tough. It's different. So
1: if any of you out there in listener world uh, are interested in reading any of Allie's uh, articles, go to Huffington post and search uh, her name uh, and you'll pop up an article from August 10th that I want to, all of you to pay attention to, but I think it's one of the one of the most well-written, interesting articles, uh, and it's about this high-value detainee interrogation group, which uh, is something that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. Uh, and certainly, it's in response to um, the, the Bush years of the torture and the torture report. Um, and you it's of long form, it's a long article, and that's one of the <laughs> advantages That's one of the advantages you have of being <laughs> online. I mean, it would probably take up a good half of a, a page in a, a normal newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that program, that article? Because I think you, you do a pretty fantastic job of laying things out from top to bottom of, of the intent of the program and perhaps how it's not living up to expectations or who knows if it is or not. And that's one of the big problems that we run into.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> um, the HIG is something, the high value detainee interrogation group, which if you want to talk about acronyms, they right. really screwed that one up for some reason. Um, commonly referred to as the HIG is this kind of special Interagency group that the Obama administration put into place, obviously to replace the CIA's torture program. You know, in theory, the thing sounds great. It's this interagency shop involves CIA, DIA, FBI, the the top interrogators from the from all of Washington, um, and it's supposed to be kind of this like mixing bag um, for. They want the best interrogators available. So when we capture someone overseas or when one of our allies captures someone, we have the right people immediately to be like, "Okay, you are deployed. Go interrogate them. And it's all supposed to obviously focus on rapport based, non-coercive interrogation techniques, not torture. Um, Legally, they're bound to the Army Field Manual. And again, in theory, it sounds great, Um, as is the case with a lot of Obama's torture reforms in practice hasn't necessarily shaken out to be as permanent or sustainable as was anticipated. Um, so some of the challenges that have emerged with the Hague, um are that it, first of all, cuts at a longstanding feud in Washington, which is what agency is the best agency to handle interrogation, which, you know, on paper, everybody will be like, this is the FBI's baby. It's all them. They're the best. Yeah. Behind closed doors. That's not what people say. Everyone knows it's, you know, it's one of the worst kept secrets that there's still a lot of bad blood between, you know, the agency and the bureau over who is, has better interrogators. Um, so you have a lot of the bureaucratic shuffle of who should really be in charge here. Um, and then you have the question of, are they any good? Uh, mm. We don't really know that. There, there's been a lot of people in Washington who didn't even really know what I was talking about when I called around and asked. Um, and there, as far as oversight goes, it, it's fairly limited. Um, but we also have this question of: there's been a lot of money pumped into research for the for the HIG to to figure out what is the best way to interrogate people, and, and all of that research and that training. Focuses on rapport based, non coercive, you know, a conversation like we're having right now. I'm not interrogating you, but well, I'm interrogating yeah. <laughs> you. So you just didn't <laughs> yeah, know that at this point. Yeah. Turn the tables. Um, but, you know, very c- how to build people's trust so they will talk to you, not I'm going to torture you to the point that you will give me information. Um, so they have. All this research together and they they train people and they, you know, when you get assigned to the HIG, they give you this week long course on this is how you build rapport. This is what you need to know. It's very based on cultural understanding, um, how to get someone to trust you. But at the end of the day, when the interrogation door closes and interrogate HIG interrogators walk out of that course, no one knows if they're actually using that in the room because they're not legally bound to follow their own training. Um, They're only legally bound to follow the Army field manual, which still allows. Allows for sleep deprivation mm-hmm. and certain solitary confinement situations um, so you have that kind of juxtaposing interrogation posture that we really don't know what they're using um, and on top of that you know another concern that we saw is that in the six years since Obama announced it it's kind of become a Washington orphan and they aren't really convinced that they're getting the best interrogators into the hig um, you know when we capture a high-value target overseas, the HIG can interrogate them, but so can military interrogators, so can non-HIG FBI interrog- you know, There's a lot of people who can interrogate a high-value target, and as is typical with the bureaucratic shuffle in Washington, a lot of agencies would prefer to just keep their best interrogators right. and let them get the information rather than give them to the HIG and let FBI or the HIG take the credit.
1: I mean, you've written a lot of great articles. The, the one previous to this, the August 7th article about the CIA working with bad guys, which was wonderful <laughs> from my perspective. The reason I brought this one in particular one up is that I think this could be used – and this is not you know me trying to, to dump faint praise on you. I think this is a great example of intelligence reporting and it could be used for uh, journalists of case study because your sources, and a lot of them at least – For why it's not working or is it not working, are these other services which have this deep seated rivalry against it already? And so, there's, you even mentioned yourself, there's this back and forth about we should be doing this, the FBI should be doing this, this is the Mm -hmm. CIA's baby, this is the Army's baby. And so, and as a historian, I see this as well. I mean, the idea of, you know, I'm looking at government documents that aren't written for historians. They're mm-hmm. written, you know, in some cases to, you know, if it's an army document from G2, it's written to tweak an agency, the OSS <laughs> or whatever, back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so, it, this is one of those cases where I was reading this article, just kind of chuckling to myself, like, of course they're saying that. I mean, that's one of these, yeah, the CIA wants this; they don't want the FBI to do it, and it's really kind of this wonderful. uh You know, laying all this out in one, again, relatively lengthy article, but one article just you can see all the difficulties inherent in covering intelligence in one place.
0: I think it would probably be a fantastic case study (laughs) for how ridiculously ridiculous the Washington's IC is. Um, You know, when I when we first when I first read the first draft of this story, this was like my baby for like five months. It was one of those journalistic pet projects that kept getting pushed off for other stuff. And the first draft of it was reliant on a few sources. It was very critical. It went, you know, I read through it and I was like, you know, there needs to be more balance in this. Um, And I I think it worked out again to when you put that balance in, it almost exhibits even better. This is how tangled this process is. Um, You know, another challenge with reporting it um, that I think is endemic to a lot of intelligence reporting is when you call around to people. Probably thanks to the overclassification of the Obama administration. But when you call around to the IC and ask them to talk about something, they're always like, well, we can't talk about that. Mm -hmm. And Usually that's code for we don't know what the hell you're talking about. But they can just say, well, we can't talk about it. And then when you actually press them, well, well why can't you talk about it? Is it classified or you just really don't know? They're usually like, well, we don't. It's it probably – we're not really sure.
1: It's a bit of a Glomar response. Exactly. Sort of, uh, we, so, we can either confirm or deny <laughs> whether we know what the hell you're talking yes, about. Yes, we can yeah. either
0: confirm or deny <laughs> whether this exists or whether or not it would be classified if it did exist. Like it's, it's ridiculous when you really get down to it. And that was the constant – runaround that happened with this story but with any intelligence story it's when when you really get down to it and impress someone like can you talk and not talk about this because it's classified or do you really just have no idea what this acronym stands for then you get into this you realize that you know the, the classification shield is used for so much more than protecting national security secrets and it makes it a lot easier for people to be like oh no no comment sorry which makes it hard to get a balanced story right
1: So Allie Watkins, who's joined us today, covers intelligence and national security for the Huffington Post. Allie, thanks for taking the time to be with us here on SpyCast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.